Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we thank you so much that you're building your church, Lord, that you're building us internally, that you're building us as a community, that you're building us as leaders. And so we pray, Lord, for, for Josh and David as um, we look towards uh, having them officially be elders in just a couple of weeks, Lord. We pray you bless them. Um, we pray for those here that are called for that ministry as well, Lord. We pray that you would uh, alert the body to that, Lord, that, that it would be known, Lord, that you would develop those gifts, Lord. We want to develop leaders here. We have a desire to, to impact our community, and we need leadership to do that. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Even as we open up Psalm 119, how good your word is, Lord. We pray that you would give us just a, an overwhelming sense of the goodness of your word this morning, Lord. That we would leave with an appetite for you, an appetite for your word, Lord. That's something only you can do, and we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in our mixtape series, and uh, we're in Psalm 119. And um, we don't know who wrote Psalm 118, but one thing we do know about the writer of Psalm 118 is he loved the Bible. This was a guy who loved God's word, and it's, it, he wrote this entire song about it. And he used a bunch of different terms for God's word. Don't let it throw you off that he calls God's word his law, his commandments, his statutes, his precepts, his rules, his word, his testimony, his promises. All those words mean God's word, okay? And this guy would have had less of God's word than we have because it was a long time ago, so he'd have mainly parts of the, what we would call now the Old Testament, right? First five books of Moses, and he would add some other things. Obviously, wouldn't have had the New Testament at this point. Um, but he loves God's word. Eleven times he says he loves God's word. In 167, and I'll just call it the numbers, by the way, as I do this, because that's the fast way. In 167, it's all in Psalm 118, he says, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. And guys, this, this guy's love for God's word is contagious. You know, as you hang out with him, as you read through his song, you develop a love for God's word. And that's the kind of community we want to be. That's the kind of disciples we want to be, that we have a contagious love for God's word. And he uses all kinds of other words. Ten times he says he delights in it, right? In one verse he says he loves and delights in the same verse, verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. He delights in God's word even more than riches. It's fun. In verse 14 he starts off by saying, I love your word as much as riches, and then later, in verse 72, he goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I love your word. It's better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then in 127, he says, above gold, above fine gold. He's like, I don't just love it like riches. I love it way more than riches. In 162, he says, I rejoice in your word like one who finds great spoil. Okay? So he's like, when he opens the word and he finds things in God's word, it's like he found treasure that was just laying there. He discovered hidden treasure. He, he finds God's word tasty. Look at 103. He says, how sweet are your words to my mouth, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know, how sweet are, are your words to my taste? They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. You just think, mmm, you know, you just, you know, it's sweet. That when he eats it, he has a, there's a, uh, a, a kind of a, a salivary, you know, response to this. He, he loves God's word. It's sweet to him. It's savory to him. It's tasty to him. And feel free, as any of these verses I read, if you feel kind of good about them, you could say, mmm. You'd be like, hmm. And we'll work up to amen because we're not like an amening people. We could be. We should be. We'll start with mmm, and then we'll build our way up. And we could actually form words in response to God's word, which would be great. So, um, so feel free to mmm. He hungers, guys. He even longs for God's word. Look at 20. It says, he says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. It's a lot of control, isn't it? I mean, this is like he's, he's, he's consumed with longing. 
Um, 131, he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This guy's out of control, right? The word of God, guys, is clearly his joy. Look at 111. He says, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. God's word is his song. In verse 54, he says, your statutes have been my song. In fact, that's what this is, right? Psalm 118 is a song that he wrote about how much he loves the Bible. It's like, he's like, you know, I I love the Bible so much. Uh, I wrote a song about it. You want to hear it? And then you find out it's a super long song, right? It's, It's 176 verses. I was just thinking to myself, ish, like how long would it take to sing 176 verses? It takes 16 minutes to read it, roughly. You know, if you're going to ponder, it'll take longer. To sing it you, is longer, right? I mean, this is probably an hour-long song about the Word of God. This, and it's an acrostic, which is amazing, too. You don't just write a song. But then each Hebrew letter of the alphabet, there's a section and then eight verses. It's insane. This guy's love for God's Word. Why does he love God's Word so much? Well, he tells us. In line after line, he tells us why. And I would just say, make this your go-to place if you're feeling a lack of desire for God's word, if you're feeling dry, you're feeling like, ah, I, don't, I know I should read the Bible, I don't really want to. Read Psalm 119 because this guy, when you hang out with him, your appetite will change. And so he gives us reason after reason. I boiled it down to five, be relieved, five reasons that he loves the Bible. And he says first, I love the Bible because it's God's very word. You know what's neat about these verses? Almost every one of them has the word your in it, and it's referring to God. And it's connected to his word. So it's your law, your commandments, all that, right? Over and over again, almost every verse has the word your. What's the point? The point is, is that these are God's very words. What you hold in your hands are God's very words. Three times he says that it's words that have proceeded from God's mouth. And in verse 88, it says, In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the words of your mouth. Right? So the word of God, guys, is New Testament talks about it being God breathed. It's something that's come directly from God. These are his words. They're inspired by him. They're breathed out by him. Now that doesn't mean that they're dictated. You guys might get the sense, oh, it's God's word, then he was like, hey, Paul, write this down, you know? Like, and it's dictation. It's not dictation. There's only a few sections where God dictates to a prophet exactly what to write. Normally, what he did is he would move the minds of the writers to write these words. And so they're the words of the actual authors. So when you read the text, you can see the author's writing style, you know? You can see the author's uh, vocabulary, their mood, their interests, their experiences. So that a piece of David's writing is different than a piece of Daniel's writing because it's really David's writing. It's really Daniel's writing, right? Um, Or a, a letter from Paul sounds a lot different than a letter from John or from Peter. They're writing about the same thing, but there's a different style. And you can, you can sense their joy or their sadness or their anger. It all comes through, through God's word. Um, and so what we have here is we have words that though they are written by particular human authors, they are God's very words. They're the words that God intended. He moved them to write these specific words. You think, gosh, that's hard to understand. How can the Bible both be, you know, God's word and, and human word at the same time? And you know what can help you in that is the whole idea of the incarnation, right? We know that Jesus is fully God, fully man, right? Um, in the same way, God's word is written by human beings with their writing style and everything, but inspired by God, so it's God's very word. So we have God's very words through real human authorship. It's human and divine and perfect, just like Jesus. Isn't that cool? So that, that's, that kind of solves a lot of issues for us. And so what you hold in your hands, guys, is a copy of God's very word. Regular old you own a copy of God's very word. That's crazy, by the way. 
Normal old, like suburban living, lives in a track house, lives in an apartment. You own a copy of God's very words. That's an amazing thing. Um, guys, imagine this. Imagine you had no access to God's word. No access to God's word. There were no Bibles you could get. And one day an antiquities dealer comes to town and he's got some old things to sell. And he has a copy of God's word that he wants to sell to you. He makes an offer to sell you a copy of God's word. And you had heard that they once existed, right? You'd heard that God's word was written down at one time and that they once existed, but you'd never seen one. You thought they'd all been destroyed. What would you be willing to pay for one? Now keep in mind, you have no other access to God's word. What would you be willing to pay? Would you be willing to pay 200 for a copy of God's word? 2,000? 20,000? 200,000? Would you be willing to make a mortgage-sized payment to have a copy of God's word if it was the only way you could have it? You would. <laughs> so would I. Guys, God's word is worth more than gold, more than fine gold. These are God's very words. And because they're God's very words, and because God can't lie or make a mistake, these words are inerrant words. These are words that have no error. Now, of course, we can make mistakes copying it and things like that, but the cool thing is, is that we have such a wealth of very ancient, very old manuscripts and copies of God's word that we can figure out where copious mistakes may have been made. And at the end of that process, there is no doubt on anything in the scriptures that of any particular significant meaning to any text. God's words without error. And because it's God's word, guys, it's also authoritative. The Bible carries the, all the authority of God himself because it's God's very words. Um, one author said it this way, Since the Bible is made up of God's very words, it carries all the authority of God, so that to disbelieve or disobey the Bible is the same as to disbelieve or disobey God. Makes sense, right? I mean, if it's his word, to disbelieve or disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. I had a, a situation a few years ago where I was counseling a guy who was planning on divorcing his wife for very unbiblical reasons, and he was a, you know, a Christian. And he agreed with me that the reasons were unbiblical. And, um, but he still felt like it was okay to do. And I'm like, well, God's word's clear on this. He goes, yeah, I know, but I really feel like God's saying this. And I said, look, if, if God were to appear to you right now and, and just verbally say to you, don't divorce her, what would you do? And you know what he said? That'd be different. It's not different. These are God's very words. It's not any different than if he were to appear and speak to you. Right? Since the Bible is made up of God's very words, to disbelieve it or disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. You hold God's very words in your hands. This is an awesome thing. It, like in the real sense of awesome, not like, oh, I had an awesome burrito. No, this is like awesome in the sense that it's awe-inspiring. Like this should cause us to tremble with excitement. Um, in verse 161, he says, my heart stands in awe of your words. In, in uh, verse 120, the psalmist trembles at God's word. Listen to what he says. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. And when he says that, he's talking about God's word in context. This is an awe, there should be an awe at God's word that makes our skin tremble, that gives us goosebumps, that makes the hair stand up on end, that we have God's very word. So love it, guys. Love it because it's God's very word. Secondly, this psalmist says that he loves the Bible because it gives him light. Look at 105. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He, he loves God's word because God's word gives him light, gives him insight, gives him wisdom, gives him understanding. In 104, he says, through your precepts, I get understanding. Six times, guys, in this psalm, he prays, Lord, give me understanding, give me insight. And God answers that prayer. If you look in uh, 98, he says, your commandments have made me wiser than my enemies. In 99, he says, I become wiser than my teachers. And then in uh, 100, he says, I'm, I have more understanding than the aged. It's, it's amazing to see the growth and wisdom of people that will take God's word and just go after it. 
you know, and just want to know everything that's in here and want to search it out and apply it. It's amazing what happens in their lives. Verse 24, I love, he says that the word of God is his delight and that his testimonies are his counselors. And that's something we need, guys. We need counselors. We need God's word as a counselor. Um, If you take a look at 73, it's really cool. He says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. You guys realize that when Adam and Eve, when the first human beings were made and they were created, they needed God to tell them everything, right? So they just made, they're kind of thrown out on the stage. They had to be told everything. They had to be told what they were made to do. They had to be told what they were made to find joy in, where they were meant to find meaning, what would give them a fruitful, happy life, what were meant to be human beings. They needed that. And that wasn't due to sin. That was due to being creatures. You're a creature. You guys realize that? Like, it's weird to think about. You're a creature. You're a creature made by God, thrown out on a stage. You need lines. <laughs> you need to know what you're here for. We find that from God. We find that from revelation. We need revelation, not speculation. When we look at our culture now, it's a mess because of speculation. We're all like, well, this seems like the right thing to do. Whoa, that wasn't the right thing to do. Well, this seems like the right thing to do, right? It's speculation. God's word is revelation. It's light. And so um, the first sin, guys, was really about speculation. God gave them revelation, told them this is what you're made for, and they didn't want to trust him, and they wanted to go their own way. We need light. We need revelation. Some of you guys may be in the midst of uh, big decisions. Maybe you lead a family, or you lead a business, or you lead in the church, or maybe you're younger and you're just trying to figure out life and get, get a start and have some direction. You need revelation, right? You need God's word. You need light. You need understanding. You need the counselor that the Bible can be. Now, the Bible's not necessarily going to give you like a specific answer on the thing that you're trying to make a decision on. Sometimes it does. Sometimes, though, what it does is it gives us, it gives us a framework from which that we can develop the kind of wisdom that our path will be sure. Look at 105 again. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Um, I was just thinking about our backyard. We have like an issue right now with black widows in the yard, not in the house. And we have like sharp succulents and, you know, the dog leaves things. Like, you don't want to go out there without a light, right? Like, you don't want to walk around like you could be pierced, you could step in something, you could be attacked by black widows. Guys, life's like that. There's so many ways to do this wrong, right? I mean, we see it every day. There's so many ways to do life wrong. And he says, it's a light to our feet, uh, a light to our path. And the cool thing about the Bible, too, guys, is in, in relation to wisdom, is that it grows with our needs. If you look at 130, he says, the unfolding of your words gives light, and imparts understanding the simple. What's really cool about the Bible is that the clear, important truths, the, the core truths, are easy to understand. You know, it's, it, it, it's made for the simple. It's made for the Padawan, right? It's made for the beginner. It's made for the new person. And, and, and the Bible is clear enough to the most important things are, can guide the simple. But then I think most of you guys have found that have dealt with it for a long period of time. Like this passage says, it unfolds. And it's got a depth to it that you can never exhaust. And so it's got this shallow end that's safe for the new person, and it's got this deep end that you can never mine fully. Guys, love the Bible because it gives you light. So thirdly, he loves the Bible because it gives him liberty. Take a look at, um, at verse uh, 133. 
The, the, the Bible, guys, is God's means to set us free. Ever since the fall, we have been uh, prone to get enslaved by sin, right? And yet God, the Bible is God's means to set us free. Now, you might assume that somehow the Bible will entrap you. I think a lot of people in our culture think that. If I was really to take this book and really take it to heart, it's just going to be shackles on me, right? It's just going to entrap me. It's just going to enslave me because, you know, there's things called laws and commandments. It sounds very restrictive, right? Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Take a look at 133. He says, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Guys, sin enslaves us and the word of God sets us free. It sets us free to live the way we were designed to live. Um, verse 45, I love verse 45. This would be one to underline this one. It, it says this. He says, I shall walk in wide places for I've sought your precepts. That's really cool. If we live according to God's word, if God would so uh, give us the strength and energy to live out God's word, it actually is freeing. It lets us live in wide places, not constricted places. G.K. Chesterton said, The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and an order, it had laws, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Don't you love that? The Bible's commands are given to us to let good things run wild. He knows what gives for human flourishing. He knows what will give us liberty. I mean, the word of God boiled down in its commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a bummer. <laughs> Anything other than that is actually slavery, guys. God's word gives room for good things to run wild. I love verse 9. He says, how can a young man or young woman keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? For my whole, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commands. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You guys love the Bible because it gives you liberty so that we can walk in wide places and let good things run wild. Fourthly, he loves the Bible because it gives him life. This section's super intense, this whole give me life part. He constantly is pleading, and maybe you guys have read it this week, Psalm 119. He's constantly pleading with God to give him life, to give him strength, to give him joy. He, he's, a, he's a person that's, that's very embattled. I mean, once again, we don't know who wrote this, but we do know that this guy's often in a, in a storm of affliction. Um, we know that people are plotting against him, powerful people. Verse 23 says, even though princes sit plotting against me. Or 95, he says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. So there's people plotting against him. There's people slandering him. Verse uh, 78 says, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. You know, so this guy is embattled. And he says enigmatically, and I don't know what verse 83 means. He says this, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I do not forget your statutes. I have no idea what that is. But it can't be good from the context. He's like a wineskin in the smoke. You're like, I feel you, man. You know, I don't know if that means like dried up or what it is, like a wineskin that's dried out. But this is a guy that's in battle. He's often in the storm. And he turns to God for shelter. So there's a storm of affliction and he comes to God's word for shelter. Look at 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. What a cool prayer. What a cool prayer on a day that everything's going wrong to say, my soul is melting away for sorrow. Strengthen me. In 107, he says, I'm severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. In 143, he says, I love this, trouble and anguish have found me out. He says, but your commandments are my delight. It's like a bad horror movie, right? Where guys kind of wander around and the, the monster or whatever is chasing them real slowly. They come around the corner and it, it, it's there, you know? He's like, trouble and anguish have found me again. But give me life according to your word. They found me. 
Um, This life that God gives, what is it but joy and peace and refreshment and renewed strength and hope? And he gives constant testimony about how God gave him that. In verse 50, he says, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Awesome. You guys can feel that? You feel that before? How about this one? You guys ever feel this? You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. That somehow the word of God becomes a hiding place for him. Um, Or 165, great peace have those who know your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Or I love this one, 92. He says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. He said, I would have perished in my affliction. He's like, I don't even know how I would have lived. I don't know if he, you know, he would have ended his life or what would have happened. His life would just be a mess. I'm not sure what he means by this. But if it, God's word had not been his delight, he would have died in his affliction. And, and what's really cool, too, is this guy who says, I love the Bible and I love the Bible. He admits that sometimes his troubles were his own doing. You guys realize that? Take a look at um, verse 67. Like sometimes he wanders and God used affliction to bring him back to the word. 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. (laughs) You guys, anybody have that testimony? Before I had problems, I went astray, but you know what? Now I'm staying real close, right? Or, Or 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How many of you guys could say that about your trials and about your suffering? It's good that me that I was afflicted because now I care about your word. Guys, love God's word because it gives you life. God's word is like this portable shelter, like a, a refuge, you know, a, a place of rest, a place to be refreshed. It, it's, it's a place to refill with hope. It's a place to regain your strength, and, it's, and it can always be with you. It's amazing. Fifth, he says that he loves God's word because it gives him his Lord. Take a look at 135. He says, make your face, talking to God, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Isn't that what we really want? When we open God's word and we spend time in God's word, what we really want is we want God's face to shine upon us. We want a glimpse of our God. Because, guys, we don't worship a book. It could sound like that as you read Psalm 119. We don't worship a book. Um, But this book, guys, is a window through which we can catch glimpses of the God we do worship, right? It's a means, not an end. Tozer talked about that. Tozer said, A.W. Tozer, he said, the Bible is not an end in itself. It's not the whole thing we want, really, but a means to bring us into an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, to enter into him that we may delight in his presence and taste and know the inner sweetness of God himself in the core and center of our beings. That sounds good, huh? That's what God's word is for. It's a way for us to gain a glimpse of God, to to interact with God. Paul said about our state now, he said, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see face to face. Like when he returns, we're going to see face to face. But now we see in a mirror dimly. He says, now we know in part, but then we will fully know as we're fully known. We live in this time, guys, where we don't see God yet. We will one day see him. Old writers called it the beatific vision, which means the vision that makes one happy. Isn't that awesome? When we see him, it's going to melt. It's going to make everything right. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything that we, you know, ever experience is going to come and seem like it lines up just perfectly and just right for that very moment. Anything you've been through. Um, But now, guys, we can catch glimpses of God through this window, through this book. We look at at the Lord. And St. Augustine said that the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. And so we read them. We read them homesick, right? We read them homesick, wanting to get as much as we can, to learn as much as we can about the Lord, to see as much as we can of God through his word. Because that's really what gives us light and life and liberty, right? 
is seeing him, is knowing him, experiencing him through his word. So love the Bible, guys, because it gives you glimpses of your God. That's what this is for. Um, and you might be saying to yourself, you know, well, I, you know, I, don't know, I don't think I have that kind of relationship with God through the word. You know, like what was painted here or what you see in 119, you might think to yourself, I don't know if I really have that kind of relationship with God through the word. Where do I start? And I would say that's what this psalm is for. This psalm is for you to build an appetite for God's word. That's step one, right? You got to want it, right? It helps you build an appetite for God's word. It should be your go-to. Anytime your desire for God's word is fading, you should go to this book, this particular song and read it. And, and then the second thing he does is he points us, guys, to how we can ingest this in a deeper way. How do we ingest God's word? How do we live through God's word? How do we connect with God through his word? And the answer he gives over and over again in this psalm is meditation. Um, 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. You know, you wonder, how did this guy have this kind of relationship with God through the word? Meditate on the Bible all day. Um, 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. In 147, he says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words, my eyes awake before the watches of the night that I might meditate on your promise. And you might think to yourself, like, what's meditation? And if you've been influenced like much of our culture has by kind of an Eastern background or you grew up with an Eastern philosophy type background, you might think that meditation is like you cross your legs, which I can no longer sit that way, and, uh, and put your hands up, you know, and kind of home, you know, clear your mind, right? You think of that as meditation. That's meditation like in cartoons and stuff too, right? They meditate like that, right? That's not the kind of meditation he's talking about. He's not talking Eastern meditation. He's talking about Hebrew-style meditation. This, this ancient Hebrew meditation that he practiced was not to clear his mind. It was to order his mind. It, it was to order his mind around God's word. It was, a, it was a way of kind of mulling over or turning over in his mind God's word. And anyone can meditate. Um, I love what Rick Warren said about meditation. He goes, if you know how to worry, you already know how to meditate. Okay, <laughs> because, because that's meditation on your problems, on your fears. Like, you already know how. Wow, cool. You actually, some of you are amazing at it, you know. So, uh, what, but what we do in biblical meditations, we turn over God's promises and his word. And so you have the equipment, right? Henny uh, Scooter said that meditation is the Christian's way of chewing the cud. You know what that is? You know, cows chewing the cud? So the way a cow eats is a cow will go out and graze, eat up grass like crazy, and that grass goes in their stomach. They have four chambers of their stomach, four different stomachs. The rumen is the big one. It's like many gallons, and they just dump all that food in there, okay? Just eat, eat, eat. And then later, when they're kicking it under a tree or something, what you'll notice is all of a sudden a wave will come up the side of their neck, up their esophagus, and a big bolus of that stomach juice and material will come into their mouth and start chewing again. Like, where'd he get that food? He was carrying it, okay? So he brings it up and he starts chewing it again and, 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 great, and chewing over it, and then they'll swallow it again, and then a little bit later, they'll spit it up again, and they'll chew on it some more, right? This is how cows, why are they doing that? They're getting it to extract all the nutrients, right? They want to extract every last bit from what they ate. Guys, meditation on scriptures like that. It's not the quick grazing type reading. It's an unhurried pondering over God's word, over a small portion of God's word. It's moving that little phrase or word or image of scripture, moving it around in your mouth, you know? savoring the textures, right? Uh, tasting the subtle tones, right? Extracting the juices, right? Absorbing the nutrients through prolonged chewing. That's what meditation is. You mull it over, you're chewing it, you're getting the juice, you're extracting, you're finding things in there you didn't taste at first, you start to taste them. 
and you swallow it, you bring it up again, okay? <laughs> Spurgeon used a different image. Spurgeon said this, he said, we must meditate, friends. These grapes will yield no wine unless we tread upon them. Isn't that cool? That there's that kind of treading upon it, that kind of grinding of it to really bring it in. And I want to give you a few little things at the end about, like, how do you meditate? But first, I kind of want to deal with, real quickly, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this naturally all the time? If it's such a good thing, why don't we do it? It does take time, right? I don't want to give any rules for how long people should meditate or anything. But a common number that people throw out, even from hundreds of years ago, 30 minutes, something like that. I find that unless I have 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, I don't really get everything I could get. You know, I haven't really chewed until that portion. It takes a while for your concentration to really hone in, right? That doesn't happen the second you start. And so um, whatever that number is, and you might say to yourself, well, you just don't understand I don't have time. I don't have time for this. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? But the thing is, guys, uh, you do have time. <laughs> I want to challenge you that the reason why you don't meditate on Scripture is not that you don't have time. We all have enough time. It's not because you don't have time. It's because you're distracted. We're all super distracted. I don't know if you guys realize this. Uh, some of you aren't, but almost every one of us, including me, were super, super distracted. There has always been distractions in past ages. Past ages, like, you know, you had to wash your own clothes by hand. You had to milk the cow. Like, there are all kinds of things you had to do. We don't have to do that now. But what we do have distraction-wise is we have digital distraction. You guys realize that the typical person that uses a smartphone, they, they check their phone 81,500 times a year. Okay? That's every 4.3 minutes they're awake. And I say they like it's not us. You know, like, you know. People that do that, you know, every four minutes. You guys probably going to check your phone right now, you know. Our brains, guys, have become addicted to that little dopamine hit you get every time you see a new text, you see a new post on Facebook or Instagram, a new tweet, new email, new news headline. A lot of us are like, I don't do social media. Yeah, but you love the new headline that goes, what? What's he doing now, you know? And you get all upset, right? There's a little dopamine hit. We become addicted to it. And the thing it's doing is it's destroying our ability to concentrate. Now, you can retrain your mind to concentrate again. But for the time, it's destroying your ability to concentrate. And that's why you guys may have noticed, like, you can't read anymore. Like, I know how to read, I just don't, you know? That's why. That's why you notice maybe, like, I can't remember anything anybody says anymore. Like, I don't hear my wife anymore. I don't hear my husband anymore. Like, my kids say, mom, 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 mom. That's the seventh one I hear them. Why? We're super distracted. I mean, people have found, like, we do this pattern of reading that's been, because of this addiction, it's F pattern of reading. F because you read the first two lines of an article and then you skim down for the next thing that you might find interesting. It's an F pattern of reading. It's and then how many of you guys have been reading? It takes up more than a screen and you look at the sidebar. You're like, how long is this thing anyway? I've been reading for 40 seconds. You know, right? We're super distracted. We're super distracted, guys. We have, you know, we have, we've trained our minds to be like this. You know, how many of you guys have tried to read anything and just a few minutes in, you have this, like, overwhelming urge to check your phone. You know? It's a crazy thing because it's like, like, I'm going to miss something big. Like, you're not a trauma surgeon. Maybe some of you are. I don't know of any trauma surgeons here. Like, there's nobody that needs to get a hold of you every four minutes, right? You're not a trauma surgeon. But we've trained our brains to want that digital dopamine cookie every four minutes. Oh, I need a cookie. You don't need a cookie, right? 
And, and the crazy thing is, is that every time you switch tasks, you realize there's this thing called attention residue. Attention residue is you go from this test to that task, and it takes several minutes before that task is gone, and you can actually begin to concentrate. People take it, say it can take seven minutes, 12 minutes. There's a bunch of different things. But you get the idea. If you're distracted every 4.3 minutes for a digital cookie, and you have an attention residue of seven minutes, you never concentrate all day. <laughs> Maybe at work where they force you to do it, but you don't do it. And, and I don't do it too. I've noticed the same thing with me. And this has certainly, guys, affected our ability to meditate on Scripture for 20, 30, 40 minutes, undistracted before the Lord. I think it's the main issue for most of us. And there's some things you can do, and this, you know, sermons aren't a time for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Turn the notifications off on your phone. I don't know why you need notifications of seven apps and what everybody's posting. That's an insane way to live. Um, your brain was not meant to do that at all. And, you know, I read this book, Deep Work, and he was talking about, like, our brains are, like, the most important thing we have, right? And in industry, they're the most important asset. You went to school, you trained a brain, and then we create work environments where you're basically, it's like somebody would pour a, a bucket of rocks into a, a well-honed machine. It's like we were meant to think over long periods of time undistracted. And so turn off notifications, delete the apps. I mean, why social media is super addictive is the apps, um, you can schedule your time with social media. Imagine this. Like, I'm not saying don't do it. You could schedule 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day, you could pretty much capture all the memes and the videos of the cute cat and stuff like that. Probably in 20 minutes. Schedule it. Schedule it for a time. I'll tell you what I do. I install the app to do my 20 minutes, and then I delete the app when I'm most disciplined. You could install and delete that app every day. You'd be far better off. It's far less addictive. Um, Keep track of how long you're able to do that kind of concentration. I thought this was really illuminating. When I first tried to do it, I could go like 17 minutes, which makes me like a marathon runner, right, in this world of distraction. But it's horrible. 17 minutes is the longest I could go without a cookie. Like, that's the longest I could go. Write down and train yourself to do otherwise. Guys, we all have time for biblical meditation. We're just distracted. Even those of you with small kids, I know you have small kids. Parents, free each other up for this. Guys, give your wife 30 minutes when you get home so she can go meditate on God's word in the backyard or something. This can be done. This is something we can all do. Let's free each other up for it. Biblical meditation, guys, could be a way that we retrain our brains for concentration. We could actually be better off than the culture if we were actually living this passage because our brains wouldn't be so distracted. Um, and we can all do this, and it's going to help us do everything else better. The 17th century bishop, uh, Francis de Sales, who did not have a smartphone, said this, Half an hour's meditation is essential every day, except when you're busy. Then you need an hour. Isn't that interesting? We'll do everything better. Guys, the quality of our service, of our, our families, of our customers, of our neighbors, of our friends, all depends on our meditation on God's word. We minister off our meditations. I don't have anything to give you unless I've found something in God's word. You guys know when you're flying and, and they, they go through that whole, like, rigmarole and you don't watch, but there's a whole thing about the mask, right? What are you supposed to do when the, if you got a kid, who do you put the mask on first? You put your mask on yourself first, which I was like, that's sad, but no, it's good because you, like, both be dead, right? And so you put the mask on yourself first, right? And then you put the mask on your kid. Guys, I can't do anything for you unless I've had some fresh air from being with God. You can't do anything for your kids, you can't do anything for your spouse, unless you first put the mask on yourself. So how do we meditate? I'm going to go real quick. A couple of practical steps. First, the first step is invitation. Find a distraction-free situation, digit, no phone. You can Instagram the party later, but don't use it during, okay? 
And uh, find a quiet place. Maybe you want to use some earbuds, write music. I mean, I could do this almost anywhere now because I have, like, these earbuds that are, like, vacuum sealed into my ears. So I hear nothing. So if I'm at Starbucks, I don't hear the people giving each other horrible advice at the next table. Put those in, right? And then intentionally, as you're sitting there with the Word, intentionally intend to put yourself in the presence of God, okay? Think of intentionally. I, I love this, what John Davis says. He says, the reader of the Bible comes to the text, not as a stranger to Christ, but as one who is actually connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit, as one who is really in the real presence of the risen Lord in prayerful reading of Scripture. Meditating on Scripture can and should be real-time experience of communion with the living Christ. We need to remind ourselves that, right? We sit down, we need to remind ourselves, I'm meeting with God. And then what's really cool about Psalm 19 is there's tons of prayers you could pray. In this part of invitation, we're inviting God. Let me just give you a few of them. You could read through Psalm 19, put a little P next to every prayer that you think would be helpful. Um, here's a great prayer. When you're first starting to meditate on God's word, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Fix my eyes on your ways. <laughs> like, give me some concentration. Or, or verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Like, hone my heart. Get me here. Um, 37, this is a great one for social media. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, right? Isn't that awesome? That, that's a great prayer to pray. He'll answer that. Or 25, my soul is clinging to dust. Give me life according to your word. It's like, I'm dying here, Lord. Please show me something. Um, ask God for a receptive heart. Verse 29, put false ways from me and graciously teach me your law. Or I love 32. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Pray for heart enlargement. Now, I mean, sometimes when you come to God's word, don't you feel like you just came out of duty and it was so hard to even do? And your heart's like this tiny little shriveled raisin, frozen raisin sized heart. And you're like, I can't do a whole lot with this, right? And he says, I'm going to run for you, Lord, but you got to enlarge my heart. Pray for that heart. Pray for insight. Look at verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant. Can you imagine praying this? You sit down, you got all your stuff out, right? And you pray, deal bountifully with your servant that may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a soldier on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Or 135, make your face shine upon me. And I would recommend in prayer, if at all possible, pray aloud. I think most people do a lot better job focusing on prayer. Uh, silent prayer is kind of like, you know, about 20 seconds in, right? You're like thinking about lunch. And it's like, this is a weird conversation. But um, praying it out loud, murmuring it, writing out your prayer. If you're in a public place and you can't pray out loud, write it out. I do this weird thing where I'll, I'll write out my prayer without any spaces, so no one can even read this thing, because I'm just going to throw it away when I'm done anyway. And so I'll write out a prayer. It helps me, like, focus my mind if I'm in a place where I can't pray out loud. Um, it, it's good uh, when you start doing your reading, guys. What, what we want from meditation is leisurely, prayerful, meditative spirit for however long, 30 minutes, whatever it is, where he speaks to you through the word, and you speak back to him in prayer. People talk about listening in prayer. There's nothing in the Bible about listening in prayer. There is a lot about listening to God's word. So we sit, he speaks to us through his word, we speak back to him through prayer. It's conversation, right? It's, it's objective too, um, because it's really God's word. I, I suggest you have a pen or pencil so you can like circle a word or underline something. Like if you're reading along a passage and all of a sudden one part of it's like, bam, like you should write that down. <laughs> That's God speaking to you guys. It isn't just that God spoke a long time ago and wrote this down and now we read it. He still speaks through his word. And so have something to write that down. Um, this is a bias of mine. Use an actual physical copy of God's word when you're doing this. 
Um, I don't know of anyone that knows the Bible well that didn't get to know a Bible well, okay? I don't know of anybody that knows the Bible well that didn't get to know a particular Bible well. Because there's a thing about the way that we deal with things. We don't, we don't remember where something is in a scroll, <laughs> You know, it used to be Bibles were scrolls, right? And now they went to books, and now we've gone back to scrolling. But, um, but your mind remembers where things are on a page and gets relationship in space and time. And that, that's just the way your brain was made. It was made to find food or whatever, and you need to remember where things are. And your mind does that with a book. It'll remember. You guys have all had that, right? Upper right-hand corner, I'm not sure where, and you find it, right? with an actual copy of God's word. I would suggest two pads of paper, one of them for distractions. You know how you're just getting into it and you're like, man, I need to call that insurance company back. Okay, write that down and then flip it over so you're not looking at it, right? Takes it out of your mind, gets it out of there. Eventually, you probably won't do that, but for then, another uh, for insight, and then you just ponder the words and the phrases and the images and the associations. Ask questions as you're going through of the text. I'd really recommend John Piper's uh, look at the book. So you can go on his website, you can watch these videos, look at the book. It shows you how to meditate, not for your time in meditation, but for you to learn how to meditate, and then you go and actually do it, not with Piper, okay? <laughs> You're not going to take him. Um, verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Guys, it is so fun to meditate in God's word and find a little nugget, a treasure, something where God is clearly speaking to you. Lately, mine's been 2 Corinthians. I was telling Marcelo, probably never preach 2 Corinthians because this is my place. You know, this is my place to go. I'm not going to talk to you guys about it. But I, I, I'd love to go in 2 Corinthians and just find little phrases. I mean, okay, I'll share a couple things with you. Like, I noticed just this week, like, he calls God the God of all comfort. And you sit back and you go, like, that's his name. You know, like, should we go to him for comfort? His name's the God of all comfort. And you think of, like, all comfort, like, can I, but I get comfort out of a bagel, too. You know, it's like, but that's from God, right? And any lasting joy, any lasting comfort all comes from him, right? And you just kind of meditate and chew over it, right? Or I was thinking about, Paul says in the first chapter, I despaired of life itself. You thinking, seriously? I always thought of Paul's like big pee on his chest, and you know, he's like Superman, right? He's got a cape. You know, nothing bothers him. He goes, he goes, I despaired of life itself. I need you to know that. You know, I was just dwelling on that, or I was dwelling on this. He says to them, these people that are really, you know, messed up, he says, our hope for you is unshakable. And I was thinking like, wow, that's amazing. I was thinking, what makes me lose hope in other people, and what shakes it? Or one of my favorite things to carry around with me was this little phrase, we do not lose hope. He says that. We do not lose hope. That was just such a helpful thing for me to carry. And so once you've done that, write down that insight, write down that word, write down that phrase, that sense of leading, that experience of communion with him, and then pray and thank him. Thank him that you actually got to spend time in the presence of the living God in a way that people in the Old Testament only dreamed of. Like the, the thing you're able to do in Scripture in the New Testament time with the Holy Spirit is something Old Testament people couldn't do. They can meditate on God's word, but they did not have the profound experience that we're capable of by the Spirit. And so thank him for any insights or leadings he gave. And then the last step would be set yourself up for some recollection. Write that thing down that he showed you. And then plan on later that day looking at it again. That's how you extend the effects of meditation. Um, verse 97, he says, I, I meditate on it all day long. So and I just want to end real quick with the, with the last verse. Did you guys notice the last verse? Psalm 118. So this is a guy that like, He's like, I love, love your Bible, and I love your word, and I'm panting, and I'm, it's so sweet to my taste. And all you. You're thinking, like, this guy's awesome. Like, this guy never does anything wrong, right? Well, look at, look, at, look, at, uh, Psalm, look at the last verse, 176. Listen to what he says. He goes, 
After all this, he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I don't forget your commandments. Isn't that cool? He's like, actually, after all I saying all this, I, I really can't, I'm really pretty lost right now. <laughs> you know, I've really wandered quite a bit, actually, after saying all this. And he says, seek me. Isn't that great? He's like, I'm drifting. I really need you to come and I need you to seek me. Guys, even when we don't pursue him, he pursues us. In fact, guys, we had wandered so far from the word that the word became flesh to dwell among us and to pursue us. Just realize that? When Jesus came, John called him the word. He says in John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then listen to this in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we have here is out comes this man that fully embodies the light and the life and the liberty that God's word gives. And Jesus Christ is what, he embodies what we would be like if we let the word run wild in our lives, right? Like he was a, a living example of everything that the Bible can do in our lives. The way he loved God. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The way he loved people. He loved him even to death. And I just ask you, have you wandered? You know, he came for you. He came to pursue you. If you've wandered, he says, you know, seek your servant. He sought you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all your wanderings. Receive him today. There's no reason for you to leave this room and get in your car and drive away and not know this God. There's no reason for it. He's seeking you. It's no accident that you're here and you're hearing this. This is God speaking through me to you. Receive him. And you'll receive him and you'll receive the relationship described in Psalm 119, which is not all roses, right? We're not promising you life that's all easy. This guy had a hard life, but what did he have? He had a deep life. He had a deep life with God, knowing that God had taken away all of his sins and was going to live through him. Guys, Jesus will always be more committed to you than you are to him. Always. You're like, well, I wish I was more committed. You'll never be as committed as he is. This is the God we meet in the Word. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.